Before we begin today's episode of Skincare School, we acknowledge First Nations people as the traditional owners of the lands and waters of Australia. We recognise and pay our respects to Elders past, present and future whose lands were never ceded. Welcome back to another season of Skincare School. I'm Amy Clark and I'm joined by science educator, chemistry PhD and cosmetic chemist Michelle Wong, aka Lab Muffin Beauty Science. This week on Skincare School. There are some kind of nice-to-haves or fun extra things that you can add to your routine beyond, you know, the cleanser, moisturizer, SPF and your active serums and things like that. Really short version, a chemical sunscreen and a mineral sunscreen, they have different active ingredients and the active ingredients are the ones that are doing the blocking of the UV from your skin. So the best experiences I've had is where I've gone to see a dermal therapist, a clinician or dermatologist and you have your skin assessed and then it's like, well, what would you recommend based on what you're seeing? So if you want to keep your foundation in a nice even layer, keep your sunscreen in a nice even layer, you want to put less things on top of it. But I feel like you would have this committed to memory, the amount of sunscreen. Somewhere around a quarter teaspoon for just your face, half a teaspoon for your face, neck and ears. And then you need to be reapplying. In today's deep dive, we are talking about how to level up your routine. So in other words, what else can you do when you are already doing the most and you want to do a bit more? This one's kind of for the skincare enthusiasts, you know, the people that have the financial means to invest in their skin a bit more or anyone who wants to take their routine to another level. So we are joined again by dermatologist Dr. Catherine Armour and founder of Bespoke Skin Technology. Thanks for joining us again. Lovely to be here. Before we really get into the nitty gritty, do you have any advice or words of caution that we might want to keep in mind when we're almost about to overdo it with the skincare. Don't believe all the hype (laughs) and get some advice. Yeah, get some advice. If you're feeling really overwhelmed about everything that you're seeing on, as you said, TikTok or Instagram, get some advice. And the basics your sunscreen, your moisturizer, your ABCs, I'm speaking generally, vitamin A's or AHA's, vitamin B and vitamin C or astaxanthin, they're a really good starting point and they do so much for you. So, you know, you don't have to be putting five things on your skin in the morning and five things at night to be doing the most. And I think just bear in mind that, yes, skincare is a really useful tool, but there's only so much that it can do and it works really well with procedures but yeah there's only so much it can achieve so have realistic expectations yeah great and I think we're gonna talk a little bit about skin treatments in a sec but it's not to say that you need to add more no one needs quote unquote to add more (laughs) more more steps and things but there are some kind of nice to haves or fun extra things that you can add to your routine beyond you know the cleanser moisturizer SPF and your active serums and things like that what would you say Dr. Catherine are some like nice to have extra things that someone could bring into their at-home skincare routine masks I feel that yeah They're very much a nice-to-have optional extra. They are not necessary to have great skin. I think one of the the nicest things about masks for those who have time is that they're a nice indulgence. They're an excuse to take a few minutes for yourself, which is a plus in itself. Clay and charcoal masks are useful for decongesting the skin, perhaps tackling oiliness. Hydrating, nourishing masks, yeah, I think are a lovely thing to do. Again, if you've got the time. Pre-event, like as a little bit of a pick-me-up. Yes. 
they're lovely, that's great, but they are an extra expense and they're not necessary to have great skin. So I think if you enjoy using a mask, you've got the time and the resources, do it, but it's not essential. At home, use sort of devices and tools are a really burgeoning area, obviously. There are no comparison, obviously, to in-clinic treatments. So I always just caution people with how much they invest because there are really very few studies on things like home LEDs and microfrequency type devices. So there's nothing, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with using them, but I think don't over-invest too much. So things I find I think are useful as home treatments and I do recommend them to some of my patients are LED devices and you don't have to spend a fortune to get one that works well both red and blue light so if you sort of suffer from rosacea or you want to stimulate new collagen I think some of the home LED red light devices are really useful red light would also be useful in acne because it's anti so I sometimes have like a a mum and a daughter who I see together the mum's like my age in her late 40s or early 50s and the child's got acne and they're like, oh, do I need to buy a red-blue device or do I just buy a red device? I'm like, well, the red device, if you have one that only does one wavelength, well, that'll work for both of you. So that's quite good. (laughs) I love the idea of sharing the cost. Yeah, absolutely. I'm like, maybe I can convince my partner to do that with me. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. It's like a household expense. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Obviously, blue light is the classical one to use, which is useful in acne. You just have to be aware that we know that blue light will also exacerbate pigmentation. So if you suffer from melasma or you have unwanted pigmentation on the face, I would steer away from a blue light device. Microneedling, as long as you're making sure you clean your device really well and replace the needles or rollers as often as the manufacturers recommend, that can be quite a useful thing to do with care for collagen induction, so helping with wrinkle prevention. It's useful for acne scarring. There's a lot to talk about using microneedling for pigmentation that's not something I would recommend you do at home. What about eye creams because you know we always say it's quite a controversial topic you know do you need an eye cream but if someone has already got their basics and they want to do a little bit more what are your thoughts about adding eye products to someone's routine? I think it falls into that nice to do kind of uh, area. I personally don't believe in eye creams. There's absolutely no reason 99% of the time why you can't take your products unless you're using a very potent retinoid up into the eye area. But by the same token, one thing that eye creams often will contain that is may not be in your general facial skincare is obviously caffeine, which is useful to temporarily depuff around the eye area. So if that's a big problem for you, and look, if you enjoy using an eye cream, and lots of women do, go for your life. But just be aware that you are basically buying something that is very similar to your night product in a smaller jar and is just heaps more expensive for probably yeah. not much more benefit. Or with a beautiful applicator that feels really bloody nice to yeah. apply. So yeah, it's definitely like one of those things where it's like, Sometimes we do things because it just feels really good and we have the means. So with professional treatments, when do you think is the right time to start looking into these? 
So if you've got acne scarring is, is something that we do get on to treating quite early. And again, you know, I often think most women don't really need to think about things like neuromodulators or muscle relaxing injections until often their mid-30s or so. There are some women that just genetically have maybe a really prominent wrinkle. The, the classic one is, you know, between the eyebrows, the frown wrinkle that sometimes it's just their family. That is their pattern of muscular movement. It's genetic. They find that they frown a lot when they're concentrating. And, you know, occasionally I'll see women in their late 20s who are very aware that they're starting to develop that, you know, fixed line there. People say, oh, you look cross all the time. And they're not. It's just that they frown when they're concentrating. So if that bothers you then, that's fine. The other things that are good to be thinking about, I guess, are your collagen induction and skin tightening type procedures. Probably mid-30s, early 40s is good to be thinking about those. I mean, we know that, you know, studies vary. Some say that our collagen levels start dropping from 26 and in some women that will be true. Certainly, we know from your 30s, perimenopausally, we know your collagen levels start dropping. So, you want to start making more of that. Definitely, if you have the means from your early 40s. So that's what we call kind of fractionated treatment. So that's things that leave the top level of the skin alone and they get down, they cause a controlled injury down in the dermis and gets your fibroblasts to make new collagen. There's a whole range of things that you can do there, dermal needling, fractionated radio frequency, microfocused ultrasound, that's things like ultraformer and old therapy, which are widely available in Australia. They're quite expensive though. The thing you choose is about your budget and a bit to do with your appetite for downtime. Yeah, that's so right. <laughs> if I'm going to spend 200 bucks on one serum versus spending maybe 200 to 400 on a skin treatment where I'm having some laser or I'm having a peel or something like that, for me, it feels like a better investment. But in terms of if someone wants to go and see a dermal therapist or a dermatologist and have a skin treatment versus a facial, which, you know, is kind of almost like a massage, but for your face. But if we want to go and have a skin treatment, is that kind of a great place to start like a dazzle bang for buck dermal therapist skin treatment that someone could kind of get started with? I think fractionated radiofrequency is really good. That will help make new collagen. It's a little bit skin tightening. The focus of the treatment is not to treat redness, but anecdotally, we do sometimes see people who perhaps they're having acne scarring treated, but they've got a bit of redness. Sometimes they actually get a little bit of improvement in their redness. And the other thing that improves is pore size. And that's not universal, but the fractionated radio frequency doesn't have a whole lot of downtime. It's reasonably affordable in the whole scheme of things. So I think that's a great treatment to be starting with. You, know, you don't want to be starting with ablative lasers or anything like that when you're you know, first venturing into professional treatments. So yes, fractionated radio frequency would be available from a dermal therapist, from a cosmetic physician, from a dermatologist, you know, in lots of different places, that's a great place to start. So when you're picking a practitioner, do you have any top tips for things to watch out for? Because I've heard that so many treatments are so dependent on who's doing them to you. Absolutely. 
I personally, if I was looking for something, I wouldn't probably do Google reviews. Maybe I should. (laughs) But speak to your friends. I think speak widely because many of my patients say, oh, yes, I've spoken to my friends about this and that and various, you know, whether that's how they've come to see me or whether they're thinking of going and doing something like a facelift. You know, they've started speaking to friends. I actually think that's really useful uh, because you hear good and you often hear some quite bad things as well. And that's, that's a good way to get that out. If you're looking to have a more involved treatment, then go and talk to your GP because they do have a really good feeling for who is good because their patients report back to them. And, this, you know, we get the same as a specialist. Sometimes I'll be referring patients off to various people and I have in the past received good and not such positive feedback from other specialists I've referred to in the past. And, you know, I file that away and keep that in mind for future. So, you know, speak to your GP. They're the main things. I mean, yes, you can absolutely. I wouldn't put too much weight on review that you see on someone's own website when you're looking at procedural things. (laughs) Something that I would recommend is not always, but sometimes be wary if you're going somewhere and you're purchasing like a set pack or something that's like set in stone. Because as we discussed before, lots of treatments, it's so dependent on your own skin type, your own concerns, what's going on, what kind of results you're hoping to achieve. So the best experiences I've had is where I've gone to see a dermal therapist, a clinician or dermatologist, and you have your skin assessed. And then it's like, well, what would you recommend based on what you're seeing? So sometimes I've gone and I'm not really sure what I might have that time in that skin treatment and then they'll say oh you know I can see a bit of inflammation here or I can see a bit of this going on so I reckon today you know and you've got your event in two weeks time so here's what I think would be best you know it's really much more customizable and personalized versus going I'm purchasing a five pack of skin needling and that's what I'm having. So that would be my tip is to like, you know, if someone isn't like assessing the skin before you're actually having the treatment, that would be kind of like a red flag for me. That's a very important point. And I just want to finish off, Dr. Catherine, if you have any tips for walking the fine line between, I guess, pushing your skin further versus pushing it too far. Yeah, well, I do see people who push it too far all the time and they come in with rashes that we have to fix. I would say listen to your skin. If you're putting something on your skin and it stings or it burns, you know, it makes you red and flaky, then you're probably overcooking it. I mean, I know AHAs might tingle a little bit when you put them on, but look, it shouldn't be stinging. Anything you're doing, and whether that be a plain moisturiser or whether that be an active treatment, listen to your skin. If it doesn't feel good, don't keep doing it and go and get some advice from a professional. Less is sometimes more. Great advice. Thank you so much for joining us again, Dr. Catherine. Thanks for having me. Just when you thought you were done with multi-pronged questions, Michelle, we have a three-part question on SPF from today's listener. Here is the question. Hello, I have a three-part question about sunscreen. What is the difference between a chemical and a mineral sunscreen? Should I be wearing a specific sunscreen due to the location and climate that I'm in? And is it true that the placement of a moisturiser in your routine changes depending on whether you use a chemical or a mineral sunscreen? First thing I would say is... If this listener has not already listened to Skincare School Season 1, Episode 2, we go really 
kind of deep on the different types of SPFs, where they go into your routine, which ones tend to typically suit different skin types or concerns. But let's recap for the purpose of tackling this three-pronged question. So first one, chemical and mineral sunscreen, the difference. Really short version, a chemical sunscreen and a mineral sunscreen, they have different active ingredients and the active ingredients are the ones that are doing the blocking of the UV from your skin. So a so-called chemical sunscreen, they contain carbon-based ingredients that do this and a so-called mineral sunscreen, which still contains chemicals, will contain metal-based ingredients. The two metal-based ingredients are zinc oxide and titanium dioxide. The chemical sunscreens, in chemistry, we actually call them organic. They tend to contain the ones with the longer names. In Australia, we have especially long names, so some of these are like a whole line on the ingredients list. But yeah, they tend to look a bit scary, but in reality, they are not scarier. They're not particularly more dangerous or safer or anything. They are just different ingredients with slightly different properties. The main difference is probably that organic or chemical sunscreens tend to be a little bit nicer in texture. They tend to be lighter. They tend to have less of a white cast if you have darker skin. Mineral sunscreens tend to be a little bit more on the drying side, which can be good if you want that. But it can also be bad because even though I've got oily skin, for example, I find that it kind of tends to go patchy. So I have like some really dry flaky bits and some oily bits. And as you can probably tell, chemical sunscreens work a lot better on my skin. Really just comes down to what's the sunscreen you want to wear every day. And so anecdotally, some people that have easily irritated or sensitized skin, they might prefer a mineral sunscreen. It just comes down to preference. As long as you're wearing a broad spectrum, you know, ideally SPF 50 plus sunscreen, we don't mind if it's a chemical or a mineral. Okay, now the second part. Should I be wearing a specific sunscreen depending on location and climate? So the short answer is not really. I guess, Amy, you kind of already answered that. It really doesn't matter. But maybe if your skin is on the dry side and you're going to a dry climate, if you're using a mineral sunscreen, for example, that might actually dry your skin out even more. So you might want to change sunscreens depending on where you are. But then again, yeah, it is so much about preference and there are so many formulas out there. You will probably be able to find a chemical sunscreen and a mineral sunscreen that works for your skin. It's just what is available to you, how many do you want to try and what do you prefer? It could also be based on, I mean, my first thought was like travel, but also a lot of people that say if you live in a really sweaty, humid kind of climate, like say you're in far north Queensland or maybe you live in Singapore, I don't know, somewhere like that, you might not want a super dewy finish sunscreen because more sweat, dew, just too much moist going on. You might want something with more of a demi-matte satin-like finish. Same goes if you're in a cooler climate or you find that you, even if you're in a, you work in an office and you sit in an office all day, that you don't have control over the air conditioner and you feel like you want a sunscreen with more of a moisturizing, comforting feel on the skin. So I guess it's for location and climate probably comes down to more the finish or the texture and like how it actually is going to feel on the skin over the course of the day rather than the filter that's in the sunscreen, I'd say. In terms of placement, I feel like there's this is one of those skincare debates. It's like this the great skincare debate of moisturizer or oil first and then there's this other one that's like moisturizer or sunscreen first so give us your definitive opinion michelle 
So luckily there is a correct answer for this. Oh, yes. In my opinion anyway. Yeah, we love that. <laughs> Moisturizer always goes under the sunscreen. So the place where this myth comes from is the idea that a chemical sunscreen has to absorb into your skin and activate before it starts working. And this is just not true. Because if you think about it, that would be really difficult to control. Different people have different things under their sunscreen. Different people have different skin type. So if you have oily skin, it's almost like you already have a face oil on your skin. If the chemical sunscreen had to like get through it, it would be very variable with different people and it would just not be a safe product to be putting on the market. So yeah, chemical sunscreens do not have to soak in. The more important thing is you can kind of think of sunscreen a lot like a foundation. If you put it on your skin, it needs to form an even layer to block the light coming from the sun, the UV coming from the sun from getting to your skin. So if you want to keep your foundation in a nice even layer, keep your sunscreen in a nice even layer, you want to put less things on top of it. It's almost like you're using a creamy face wash. You're kind of moving stuff around and yeah, your layer will no longer be intact. So moisturizer or all your skincare under your sunscreen. And then of course, the other things that we have to mention when we're talking about sunscreen is applying enough. So again, it's that thing of more than you think. A lot of brands now will tell you how many pumps equal the adequate amount, which is, I always stuff this up, but I feel like you would have this committed to memory, the amount of sunscreen. Somewhere around a quarter teaspoon for just your face, half a teaspoon for your face, neck and ears. And then you need to be reapplying. So all you would have to do is type into Google or TikTok like how to reapply sunscreen over makeup and you'll find lots of different tutorials and things like that. But reapplying, if especially if you're going to be out in the sun, in your day-to-day life, adopting sun-safe habits. So your sunnies, like we talked about, the hat, seeking shade. And so all of those things are just as important or probably more important than whether you're using a chemical versus mineral. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Skincare School. You'll find everything we spoke about referenced in the show notes. Got more skincare questions? Well, did you know that there's a whole team of experts and product specialists waiting to answer them on our Adore Beauty live chat? You can jump onto the adorebeauty.com.au website and chat to our team of real people in real time. And while you're there, tell us what you think, leave a review and a rating, and don't forget to tell everyone in your life about Skincare School. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe in your podcast app and you'll get a notification the second that our next episode drops. 